You're listening to a podcast from LIU Studios. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to this show on your podcast app of choice. For more of our programs or to support LIU Studios, visit wcwp.org. Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is called Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Our special guest today, Mr. Stephen Taibbi, television producer, a little bit of a rock on tour when it comes to the communication industry, but also a special individual who has experienced two heart transplants in his life and today is going to be talking about his advocacy for organ donorship. He's recently written a book, Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart. It's a fine piece of literature. I would recommend it to anyone in the listening audience. Stephen, welcome to Sell Them Said. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. I wonder if we can start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place. You want that professionally or um, health-wise? I would imagine to fill out the composite of the picture of your life, we'll use both if you can. Okay. Well, well then, then why don't we start with the day when I was born, which was the day of my first three operations. I had three operations the day I was born uh, to fix. They thought they could fix a minor def- uh, birth defect, but they didn't really fix it. Um, and there was another little issue that they took care of. But then when I was five years old, it was discovered that I had something called ASD, atrial septum defect, which is commonly called a hole in the heart. And that was um, a big, big deal back in 1958. Most uh, most children who had that, because it was a birth defect, um, only 50% of them survived the operation. So I had that operation in 1958 where they discovered that I had another hole in my heart and they couldn't close it at that time because I wasn't strong enough and they sent me home. <clears throat> they told my parents if I survived the year that they'd do another operation. But at that time in 1959, no one had lived through two open heart operations for ASD repair. And I became the first. Uh, and then they told my parents I survived the operation, obviously. And they told my parents, well, he survived this, but we doubt he'll make 10. And then they were told, then I, they would, my parents were told, well, he made 10, but he's not going to get out of his teens. When I was, 16, I was told by my doctor that I had a year to live and um, I had another condition and um, with my heart. And on my 17th birthday, I had a I had a a allergic reaction to a drug they had given me that gave me a severe heart block incident. And I almost died on my 17th birthday. I had the whole out of body experience, the whole thing. And then um, then I was told, after I made it through that, my parents were told to make arrangements that night. And I made it through that, obviously. And the doctors then told me that I'd be lucky if I got through my 20s. And I got through my 20s, and uh, I started, you know, when you're told that young, when you're that young, when you're 17 and you're told you're 16, you're told you have a year to live. And then, you know, after you live through that, they tell you, well, you won't get through your 20s. You start to chase life with a hammer, which is what I did. I just... I just went after life like crazy. I was had as much fun as I could, started my own business in television and all that. And then I got through my 20s and the doctors were amazed. And then when I was in my early 30s, the doctor told me, the same doctor told me that, that I wouldn't make it past 16, 17. He told me that um, I had beaten it, that um, I should go out and live, that he didn't know how I did it, but everything was perfectly normal. And you know, my, my my television business was flourishing, and um, I was doing well. I became a pilot, and then I got married, and a few years after that, I started to slow down, and we couldn't figure out why, and I collapsed while walking with a friend of mine, and we found out that I had um, something called idiopathic cardiomyopathy, which is a wasting disease of the heart from an unknown agent. That's the idiopathic part, and they... They didn't know how I got it. It was an unknown virus, but it was killing my heart. And that's what, that was what gave me my first heart transplant when I was uh, 47. And then uh, 
three years ago, three and a half years ago, I had my second heart transplant because the first one, you know, kind of wore out. I, I rejected it. And uh, so that's that's the medical story. And the motivation for my being uh, always self-employed and 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 doing whatever I wanted to do was because I had this lifetime of illness that, that I was always going to beat. It would seem that there has to be some sort of inherent feeling of vulnerability connected with all of this. Did you carry with you a feeling that, and one hates to even approach such a subject, that the next moment could be a final moment? Terrible thing to say, but you seem to have lived with that as a reality as a child. Was that affecting? That's a really, you know, the, you're the only person who's asked that question. That's a really good question. I'm, I'm impressed by that. Thank you. Um, I have times in my life when I'm just wondering when the next shoe is going to drop. That's true. But I can't let it affect me. I, I Once in a while, I have to acknowledge it. But I have to pass, I have to push past that if I want to have a, an effective and happy life. Did it inherently strengthen any feeling of spirituality in you? Out-of-body experiences are difficult to reconcile to the normal train of thought and things. I have, I have a very strong sense of my own personal religion. I was raised Catholic, but I'm, I'm not a practicing Catholic. But I think I have a stronger sense of my own religion, a stronger sense of spirituality than most. Uh, it's a very big part of my life. Um, for some, for, for me to get through everything that I've gotten through, I've had this this idea in my head that I'm here on Earth because I'm on the journey that I was meant to be on for the next stage, and um, I think that's true of everybody on Earth, but. I don't think what I think for myself necessarily means it's for somebody else. I think everything is very individual. Um, so I'm like, if you're a Star Trek fan, I like to say that um, I think I'm on God's hollow deck. You know, that thing where um, photon energy can create any environment you want, which if you think about it, is pretty much where what Earth is. And I think that in this, in this hollow deck, God is giving us a path that, each of us alone must must travel. My path is mine, your path is yours, and so on and so on. And that everything that happens to me in this journey, in this path, is meant for me. And I can't really question it or, or curse it or anything because it's being given to me by God. So if it's being given to me by God, then I have to accept it and I have to say, and I have to be grateful for it. And that's really the key to everything, as far as I'm concerned, is gratitude. You have to be grateful for everything, including the bad, because you have no idea why that's happening to you. You will one day. But, you know, we're all in this tapestry. And all we can see is we're a thread in the tapestry. We can see the thread that is next to us the threads that are above and below us, but we can't see the tapestry itself. We have no big idea how big it is. We have no idea what the tapestry um, depicts, but we're part of it. And we just have to have faith that this tapestry, that we're part of this tapestry. We're in this moment for this for a reason. These things are happening to us for a reason and be grateful for them. And when you can do that, you can face pretty much anything. The Dalai Lama's secretary was recently on this program, and he and his master teacher in India always vouchsafe and argue that one should let things be. Have you reconciled yourself, Stephen, to just allowing life to happen? I don't know if I would say that. I, I... I, you know, I try to influence my life my own. I mean, I've had my own businesses. I, I try to do the things I want to do. But when something happens to me physically, like, you know, a health thing, then the the way I'm thinking of it is, okay, this is my next challenge. I just have to get through this now. And then I, and then I just deal with that thing. Did that answer your question? Yes, indeed it did. I wonder if we could... Uh further examine that feeling, if you would not mind. Uh, when you were involved in media and the presentation of public programming, 
did you separate yourself from the reality you were experiencing as a human being and what you were trying to portray on stage, screen, and television? Or was the programs that you worked on simply a reflection of how you felt at the moment? I, I, um, I think they were fairly separate. Uh, you know, uh, I did a lot of commercials and I did a lot of corporate stuff. Uh, I did a lot of cable. I didn't, I didn't decide what any of the programming was. I just worked on the shows and the commercials and things. Um, so none of that really entered it. It just entered it in the sense that it was how I conducted myself and how I, I felt about each day. But not, I didn't try to put it on the screen or anything. I didn't do that until I wrote my book. Is there a program you have not worked on that you have not developed? that you internally and inherently think about someday doing? Well, right now I'm, I'm really, I'm kind of on a mission. I'm, I'm on this mission about um, getting doctors and hospitals and patients to understand each other better so that we could have better outcomes because there's a really big rift between those three. And um, I'm trying to, that's my next, that's really where I'm heading right now. Um, I'm speaking at a couple of, of the biggest hospitals um, about that um, pretty soon. And it's, 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 it's a real thing for me that uh, hospital results could be better easily if a few simple steps were taken by doctors, by patients, by the hospitals. Each one has its, play, its uh, part to play. Um, and, helping, and helping those three things work together better. And, uh, and thus have better outcomes and thus have fewer lawsuits. Uh, and I'm, that's, that's really the mission I'm on right now. Aside from, you know, the normal stuff of, um, I'm, I'm obviously an advocate for, for transplantation and those things. But this, this, um, mission about, um, hospitals, doctors, and patients understanding each other better is a big one for me. Continuing with that thought, uh, you'd mentioned earlier in this interview, uh, the physician who told you that your life had an expiration date. Are you an advocate as well in regard to patient-physician, an advocate of total honesty? Absolutely. It's a huge thing for me. Actually, that doctor understood me. When I was 16 years old, he knew that I had to be talked to that way. And it was a a big thing for me. I think that doubt, that not knowing is um is rotting wood in a person's soul that that can only hurt them if they're trying if they don't know what they're fighting if they don't know what they're up against then all those spaces get filled with fear and anxiety and none of that is healthy and none of that will help you heal would you carry that a step further and take the position and posit that a physician should explain the inevitability of a condition to his patient Yes, but I think that a physician, this is one of the things I think that has to be worked on. Physicians have to get better at communicating with their patients. That's something that they're not very good at. And I can understand why they aren't. I mean, you know, they're people too, and they have to protect their own psyches. And I understand that. But as a patient, I don't care because you took the job as a physician and really your job includes this. So dang it, do it. So... I'm a little hard edge on on a lot of these kind of things because having been through so so many things um, that most people haven't been through, um, it's it given me a perspective where I don't I don't I don't I don't brook um, lax um, laziness or I don't brook um, excuses for things whether it's from the patient, the hospital, or the doctor. All three of them, I don't brook excuses. I think that doctors need to figure out who their patient is and talk to that patient in the way that patient can understand. And um, I think that's a really big factor in, in somebody getting better. I think some people, you can't just lay a bombshell on them. I think it could, it could actually hurt them. But you could find a way eventually to let them know what's going on for every patient. So some patients you need to be delicate with, other people you need to be like me and hit them with a hammer. But I think the doctors need to figure out how to do that with each patient. If I can, I'd like to give you an example. Would, would that be all right? Absolutely, absolutely. 
I was in the hospital right after I'd been diagnosed that I was in heart failure the first time. And my doctor had been wanting to put a pacemaker in me since I was in my teens. And I kept telling him I wouldn't do it. And I didn't. And now a doctor comes into my room and he, and he asks if he could sit on my bed, which I really like when a doctor is that personable. And I said, of course you can. And he sits on my bed and he tells me I need a pacemaker. And I told him, look, I've been telling my doctor that I do not want a pacemaker for years and I don't want one now. And he shook his head up and down slowly and he looked at me and he was really sizing me up. This guy was really good. And he and he looked at me and he said, and this is a quote, your EKG is incompatible with life. Now, it took me a minute to to um, to decode what he had just said. But the moment I did, I went, oh, oh, OK, when can we do this? Because, you know, he had spoken to me in a way that I needed to sp be spoken in. He wasn't insistent. He wasn't yelling at me. Instead, he gave me a fact that I couldn't dispute. That's a fascinating story and a fascinating physician. Yeah, he was great, wasn't he? Indeed. <laughs> I know that, uh, given experientially my own surroundings, I will encounter people on campus and so forth who will speak to physicians who are so technologically organized and automated that they'll have their 10 minutes of visitation, and then the PA will come in and tell them what the computer said. Do you feel we're entirely gifted and focused in the wrong direction? I think there's so much wrong with healthcare nowadays that it's, it's ridiculous. I look at, I look at when I was a child, I was in, I was, see, I'm on the few people you're ever going to know who's had major, major surgery in all the, all the different uh, forms of healthcare that we've had in this country, starting with before the government was involved at all. When I had my first two surgeries, the government wasn't in healthcare in, in the least, and everything was the best. Now, with the technology may have been not as good as today, but the hospitals were run by doctors, and um, everything was affordable. I had cutting-edge surgery, two of them, a year apart, and it was never a problem for my parents. I, my, I have all the paperwork from when I was in the hospital for two months, one one time each year, 30 days one time, 31 days the next time. And that to paperwork total is 50 pages, 50 pages. That's almost what you get in the doctor's visit today. Everything has gotten way too complex. There are way too many MBAs involved. There are way too many people. Insurance is way too involved. And the government is way too involved, which has in my mind, has no business in health. How, how, I don't see anywhere in the Constitution where it says that the, the government is involved in health care. And I don't see how it's done any good. All I see is everything is getting more and more complex. And I can tell you, and a friend of mine and I had our second heart transplants within a few weeks of each other. And our, our heart transplants were, you know, from our first ones, his was 18, mine was 15 years apart. But we can tell you that in those 15 and 18 years, the difference between the hospitals, and we both had them at the same place, um, the difference between the hospitals was night and day and not for the better. Healthcare is becoming one of the focal points in the fulcrum in the coming presidential election. Are you an advocate, uh, Stephen, of a universal system, a belief that Absolutely. everyone deserves a modicum of healthcare relief? Yes, but a government can't comply it. Go to Europe. You go to Europe. Everybody from Europe comes here. It doesn't work. It's, it's too expensive that way. It, the, the costs aren't divvied up enough. There's not enough. There's, there's one central thing cannot see all the little nooks and crannies that a system that's broken, that's, that's not that unified can see. Um, we had better health care 25 years ago here than we do now as far as uh, as far as the hospitals and as far as the insurance, all of that was actually better 20 years ago than it is now. All we're doing is getting worse and worse. The only thing I want to see the government do is get out. That's the only thing I want to say. 
because they don't belong here. All they're doing is 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 adding layers. And like, how many pages of, of of paper does each doctor visit generate? Literally, it's about twenty pages a time you go in. What is that about? How is that any good for the patient? How does a doctor go through all of that to find out what's going on with you? They're drowning in information. It's too much. Are you advocating a, perhaps a type of approach that involves a leap of faith, simply saying this is what we think is occurring and this is what we surmise might be done? I'm not sure I understand you. In other words, uh, there are some uh, holistic physicians who will take the position that you deal with the whole body and you deal with trauma by in some way inferring what you feel would work, but you are not definitive. You are simply saying, try this, help, help yourself. No, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I wish I'm just wanting a system where the doctors are in charge again. That's all I want. I want, I want the insurance companies and the government to butt out and I want the, the doctors to be in charge again. Doctors don't run the hospitals anymore. That doesn't make any sense to me. This is very true. Uh, a good friend uh, is an internist and CEO at a local East Coast hospital, and he argues that the insurance companies run his ward, which is an incredible statement, but it's true. Yeah, it is true. You know, the new, the new thing is doctors are now only given eight minutes to, of time with a patient now. Eight minutes. It was something like 13. Now it's down to eight. That's the new, that's the new ruling. I mean, what is that about? That's incredible. I shall be honest with you, Stephen. I've experienced something of that sight myself in that the physician was dealing with an issue physically that I had, and his receptionist came in and said time was up. It was shocking to both of us, but that seems to be part and parcel of what's occurring. Yeah. <clears throat> and look at all the paperwork that they have to do now. It's unbelievable what they have to do. As a matter of fact, <coughs> oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, my allergies. As a matter of fact, a doctor will spend more time doing your paperwork than he will being with you or she will being with you. So how does that, how does that help the patient? Not at all, frankly. No. If you were to... What's happening is healthcare yes. is becoming a place where people are becoming rich. That's what's changing healthcare. I would agree with that. There are some who would challenge that belief, but I would tend to agree that the idea of a physician being what he was meant to be is uh, some sort of vanishing composite of what a life should be. It's a money-making proposition. An insurance agent will make more. Yeah. I don't know about that, but I just know that you know doctors are getting frustrated. They can't do what they want to do. Every time they want to prescribe something, it gets challenged. Uh, you know, I remember time, I remember when a doctor would say, take this and you just got it. Now you have to check with the insurance company. You have to see if you're covered. You have to da, 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 da. It never used to be like that. <clears throat> it's not better. It's worse. How would you propose dealing with what we both seem to agree on is the trauma of a surgical procedure or a visit to a hospital? Would you advocate some sort of psychological care as well as physical with every visit? Well, um, I don't know about with every visit, but we do know that um, open heart surgery does something to the brain. It changes something in the brain. And most patients who've had open heart surgery end up on antidepressants as a uh, necessity because of the, the physical effect the open heart surgery had on the brain. I do would say that... Um, I would like, I don't know if I, I think that there should be a psychiatrist or psychologist involved in every single thing, but I think that um, we need to be more um, open to the, to the idea to that when somebody has major surgery, it's going to have an effect on, on them, whether it's chemically in the brain or if it's emotionally. And when I was a kid, for example, I, they, it would be like, uh, I'm in a hospital. I'm fighting for my life. I, I, I'm out of school. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in this hospital for 30 days, then my recovery period, and then, bam, I'm back in school. And it was like I was, 
I used to feel like, what, where am I? You know, it was just so sudden. Every, all these different realities were so sudden. I'm out of my house. I'm in a hospital. That's a sudden reality. Then I'm out of the hospital and I'm back in school. That's a sudden reality. And it's very difficult to deal with some of that stuff sometimes. And I think that, um, that everybody, need, everybody involved in the entire healthcare system needs to be more aware of how jarring that can be psychologically. It would seem that you're describing a type of PTSD. Well, I do have, I, I have a type of PTSD. I don't have PTSD. I have something called complex trauma. But um, that took me years to figure out that I, that I had that. But yes, it's, 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 it's akin to PTSD, and it happens to a lot of people. Did you find that you yourself were an effective diagnostician of yourself? Yes, I would always listen to my body. I was pretty good at that. You mentioned uh, in your book and in your discussions avoiding ego-centered concerns. How does one approach that? I'm not sure. I would, what do you mean by that? Meaning that in a sense, a visit to the hospital isn't myself entering the doors and expecting the world to fall at my feet. It's the idea of putting my ego on a back burner, sublimating my inner passions and feelings, and simply being open to whatever I see and feel. Yeah, well, um, can I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, can I make an analogy here? Most certainly. I have a friend who's a cop, and he, he saw a Porsche on the Long Island Expressway doing well over 100 miles an hour. As he pulled the guy over, he's looking at the car, and it was all tricked out. And he said to himself, you know, if I had that car, I'd be going the same speed. All he was going to do was give the guy a warning and ask him to show him the car. He was actually going to let him go. And in, in, in New York, going over 100 miles an hour is a big infraction. So as he's approaching the car, the guy sticks his head out the window and says to my friend, what the F do you want? Now... Suddenly, all of my friend's generosity just disappeared, and the guy got 14 tickets. So it's the same thing in a hospital. This is something I see so often, and it just drives me bats. A patient in the hospital may start screaming at doctors. They curse at nurses. They throw things. They act like they're the only ones there. They, they, they become unbelievably demanding. And what are you doing to your doctors? You're doing the same thing to your doctors and your healthcare providers that that guy did to my friend, the cop. You're turning them off. You should be, when you're in a hospital, if you want to survive, you have to put aside, this is what I do. I, I keep saying you and I shouldn't do that. What I do when I go into a hospital is I am become. I understand that they are there to help me. I want to now help them as much as I can. I become the, I try to do this in my real life anyway, but I'm the nicest patient they have. I want to be the nicest patient that they have. I want them to want to come into my room. I want them to want to help me. That's a big deal. If I'm screaming and yelling at them and calling them names, they're not going to do that. But if I'm funny with them and if I, well, I try to talk to them as people and get them to talk to me as a person, that's me making a connection with them that they go, wow, this is a really nice person. I want to help him. And that's what we should all be doing when we go into a hospital or even to a doctor's office. Human decency and interaction seem an imperative, and we both would agree with it. its need. If you were to call that the number one attribute one should have upon entering a hospital as a patient, can you give the audience a top five? Well, the main thing is the one I just I just talked about. You have to you have to um, be as nice as you can, and I mean to everyone. Now, here's the funny thing about that. <clears throat> this is something I've always done. And it's, it's turned over into my life. I try to be as nice as I can to everybody I meet. It's a sincere thing. I just, I get a lot of pleasure out of helping people. I get a lot of joy out of opening the door for an old lady or for anybody. If there's somebody behind me, I'm going to open the door for them. Um, all of that things that are 
so falling to the wayside lately in our society, those are really important human things. And when you exercise them, even to the person, you know, uh, cleaning your room in the hospital, everything is better. Everything is nice. There's a, there's a, a, an aura around you and around them that everybody's happy. And that's a, that's a really good thing. The next thing you have to do is you have to be your own advocate. You have to make sure, well, this is what I do. I make sure that my privacy and that my um, dignity are maintained. I'm, I'm, I'm fierce on that. You have to maintain my dignity. You have to maintain my privacy. I'm very nice about it. And the doctors are happy to, you ask the doctor, doctor, could you please close that gap in the curtain? And they'll, oh, yeah, oh, yes, certainly. They, they want that too for you. You just have to be your own advocate for it. You have to, when they're giving you um, an injection, you have to be the one watching and saying, are they cleaning the site properly? Are they doing everything properly? Because I had a doctor who was going to give me an injection. And I made him re, re, uh, re-swab the area with alcohol. And and he was when I asked him to do it, he was like, "Oh, certainly." And there's no problem about it. It's how you do it. So you know, it, it that being nice extends into everything. And even being your own advocate doesn't mean you become a jerk about it. You know, um, but you have to be your own advocate. You have to look out for yourself. One of the things I do whenever I go to a hospital is I won't wear street clothes. I I mean, I'm uh, gowns. I wear street clothes. I, I will not wear a gown. And when I was in Cedars getting my last transplant, there I am in a button-down shirt and sweatpants. And one of the doctors comes to me and says, you are being very smart. He goes, that makes you different than the other patients. That makes us think of you as a person. He said to me that he was actually thinking of doing a study on it because he'd noticed that doctors treated patients in street clothes differently than they treated people in gowns. And it's just a human thing. So these are things that I do every time I, I go into a hospital. Um, when, on, the last, on the last operation, I finally got smart, and I shaved myself. I shaved, I shaved my chest. I shaved my hands. I shaved my arms. I shaved anywhere where there might be tape because I'm Italian, and, it, and we, we're kind of hairy. And uh, when they pull off that tape, it, it, it doesn't tickle. So I shaved myself. And by second day in, one of the nurses was, uh, who was about to give me an IV, she looked up to me and she goes, did you shave yourself? And I said, yeah, I did. And she goes, that was smart. <laughs> so, you know, these are all, I like to call them strategies. These are all strategies that you can do, that one can do, that I do, to help myself in the hospital, to help me heal, to help everything be better. And I think everybody else can do these things too. I too am of Italian lineage. There is an Italian word, abundanza, just the embrace of life, the embrace of the moment of life, its pleasure. Do you feel that the patient should be the final judge of the quality of his condition? Well, I think the doctors are going to tell you what, what, what's going on with you, but you don't necessarily have to take the doctor's final thing on it. I mean, there have been many times when doctors, look how many times doctors have told me I had a year to live. It's been three times now. And I just said, no, I have more than that. And I just fought. Um, now, sometimes that's going to work and sometimes it's not. I mean, there's going to be a time when a doctor says to me, <clears throat> Stephen, you're going to be dead in six months. And you know what? I will be. I mean, that's just the way it is. But I try to, I try to um, marshal the the powers of my body to help me when I'm sick, and to and to make it so that what the doctor is saying to me is not necessarily going to be the way it is. I've done that with many things in my life, and it's a lot of it is, like I said, it gets back down to attitude. Uh, and what your attitude is towards yourself, what your your attitude of gratitude is the biggest one. And once you have an attitude of gratitude going in your life, it's like a it's like a supercharger in your in you. It makes you it makes you almost invincible in a way. Of course, of course, we're all uh, we're, we're none of us are invincible, but it makes it makes us powerful. If we're in that attitude of gratitude, it makes things. It opens up things. It, it's, it pushes out the fear. It pushes out anxiety. It pushes out all the negatives that will affect your health in a negative way. And it makes it so that your body and you can concentrate on getting better. 
That is a marvelous phrase, attitude of gratitude. Taking it perhaps just one step further before we move on, do you feel then that certain states are on a right track, Oregon, for instance, where they take the position that a patient can disguise themselves whether they want to leave this earthly coil? Oh, you mean about um, about uh, physician assisted uh, suicide? My wife is a nurse, and I have a real problem with it, the same that that she does. I don't think that doctors should be assisting people to kill themselves. I I think that that should be left to something other than a doctor, somehow other than a doctor, because in a way to me that just seems like a big conflict of interest. I'm not saying that I think that you should force a patient to stay around. I just don't know if I think a doctor should be involved. I don't know about that. That's that's above my pay grade. I really don't have an exact answer for that. One would tend to agree that's the question asked of someone between God and man and where that person is, not easy to find. You see, the thing is, is that the way I feel, um, to me, suicide is never... Is never uh, um, is is never now 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 the people who jumped out of the World Trade Center because they were going to burn to death that that totally I mean they were going to die that totally makes sense to me but I'm talking about um, suicide in general to me it gets back to that thing of that my faith says that I'm on this earth to walk this path for a reason and whatever has been thrown in front of me is there for a reason. So for me to commit suicide, I'm somehow shortchanging God from what he wanted me to do. So for me, the idea of suicide is, is um, something I don't entertain for myself. But that's me. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to say that on, push that on everybody, but that's the way I am. It's an intensely personal view. I certainly can respect and accept that. One of the things that comes out of all of this, Stephen, is that a lot of our judgments of difference in life are meaningless. Race, culture, ethnicity, language, background, heritage, our parts are interchangeable. Absolutely. Have you found that to be something that is reinforced in a transplant ward? To me it is. I mean, geez, my first trans... You know, it's really it's really interesting. The two groups that donate the least are 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 um, the first is um, Hispanics. They're the least donating group, and the second is is African American. Yet my first heart was African American, and my second heart was Hispanic. So go figure. And you know, and um, it, it makes no difference. I mean, just like it's like uh, the way I always say it is. Let's say um, you know we're all Hondas. We're just different color Hondas, but if um, one Honda needs a uh, needs a water pump and the other Honda is about to be junked, why not take the water pump from that Honda and give it to the Honda that's still good? I mean, you know, that's it, it, you're absolutely right. There's no color. There's no there's no anything. We're all the same, I, and I wish more people would recognize how the same we are. What would you say to some in the listening audience who said, certainly I agree with that, but the idea of presupposing my post-donations of organs to a stranger, it's something I have difficulty dealing with. How would you rationalize that, carrying the card in their wallet? Well, I always think, I always say to somebody, did God give the gift of life to you? Yeah, I'm a lot. You're alive, right? God gave you the gift of life. What do you think God would prefer you did with your gift when you were done with it? Would you think He'd rather you buried it or or burned it or passed it on to save someone else? What do you think? That's what I say. But I try not to force people, or you know, that's as far as I will go with somebody if I'm talking to them about if they want to be a donor or not. It's not my job to insist they become a donor. I wish they would. But I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to fight them and I'm not going to insist. I am going to insist that they tell their family what their wishes are so their family knows at that time so that they don't have to suffer again um, while, you know, they're suffering your loss. I mean, uh, if a family doesn't know if you want to be a donor or not, they don't if you don't tell them, they don't know what to do. And if you want your final wish to be granted, then you need to tell your loved ones. 
You need to tell your loved ones, I don't want to be a donor. Now your family knows. You tell your loved ones, I want to be a donor. Now your family knows. And now the chances of what you want happening are greater. You've become more or less an advocate of this position. I know you avoid politics in this discussion, but do you find it of a necessity to impress upon legislators to allow this in each state and avoid the religious restrictions that some carry? There are no religious restrictions. That's a myth. There are no religious restrictions. Every major religion, every major religion goes, says donation is okay. There's only two things that don't allow donation. One is gypsies, and that's a culture. And the other one is Shinto, and that's, you know, where the, the emperor is God. And they're the only two things that don't allow donation. Everybody else, you name it, everyone else allows it. So that's not, that's not a problem. The problem is, um, is people getting myths and misconceptions through the news media and through the movies and through the television, which are constant, you know, um, and, you know, makes for a better story if you have all these things. But the, the reality is that you name the religion, you name any religion to me right now, and I'll tell you they allow it. So if that's not the problem, the problem is, is that people... People are afraid of it. It's kind of like making their wills. People don't want to become donors because that's also like making a will. They don't want to make a will because it means that they're going to die one day. And so is becoming a donor. It's got the same stigma to them psychologically, I think. But, um, you know, <coughs> excuse me. Well, that's what I think about that. I'm glad you said that because we live in a time where religion perhaps using a term that's adequate and accurate, has kind of been bastardized by those who take extreme positions and advocate and vouchsafe things that are simply not in the Bible, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, anywhere. But we live under that umbrella. Right. Well, that's why I'm the way I am, because I I one time had a friend who said, and it's just really funny because he's an atheist, but he said that all religions boil down to men in funny hats. And... And that's actually, if you think about it, it's pretty true. But to me, all religions boil down to men, men saying what things are. And for me, that doesn't work that well. Um, For others, if it works for for somebody, that's fine with me. I have no problem. I'm talking about me. Um, I I think I have a pretty close relationship to God. I'm very spiritual. Um, God is in my mind all the time. I'm very grateful for how many times I've been saved, and I'm very grateful for how my life has turned out. Um, But that's the way I am, and other people are free to be the way they are, the way I'm free to be the way I am. So I have no, I have no anything with anybody who's religious in any way, as long as they're not nuts about it, you know, and killing people over it. If you would. uh... Share with my audience a little bit of the story of David James Jacobo. Thank you for bringing for bringing him up. <clears throat> um, David uh, Jason Jacobo is um, my donor and uh, my second donor, and I've met his family, um, which is very unusual in, in the world of donation. Only three percent of families respond to the letters. I don't even know how many of what the percentage is of them that actually meet. It's a very low number. Um, <clears throat> but they answered my letter and we got to meet. And uh, David was a um, was a professional hairdresser. He had four children. He had just gotten divorced. And he had a brain aneurysm as he was walking into his home, into his mother's home, um, where he was living at the time, uh, in front of his father, his mother, and his sister. And... Um, and he's he's a hero. He 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 and his family are heroes because they said yes to donation, and I got the heart. But other people got he, um, two people got t- kidneys. Somebody got his pancreas. Somebody got his liver. I mean, um, somebody got his corneas. They, they, he he gave he gave tissue too. He did bone and tendon, and uh, for all I know, artery. I mean, he was a big donor, and uh, he saved a lot of people. And he's a hero, and so is the family. So is and the mother, Susan Jacobo, who's the one who um who can who gave consent. 
they're all heroes to me, as are all donor families and donors. There is a donor who was interviewed anonymously in Time magazine who took the position that he was in a room full of whispers. He was with people who had carried portions of the organs in the anatomy of a loved one. He just felt that each of them in some way inherited not only the physical being of the organ transplant, but something more. Do you feel that a bit of David is with you 24 hours a day? I've actually, I would, I cannot believe I'm going to say this because I never believed in any of this. I don't believe that, you know, if you get somebody's organ that you're now going to be an artist like they were. I think that's all, you know, people don't, don't, um, take into account the effects of um, prednisone because when a person gets a, an organ, they're put under a massive doses of prednisone and it, it, it acts psychotropically. So, you know, anything can happen. Um, but I actually felt like David, David has visited me and I'm very surprised that I'm saying that, but I am certain that David has visited me um, once in the hospital and, and once when I was in California um, I haven't haven't felt his presence in several years. No, it's 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 a year now. I haven't felt his presence since 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 the last time. Um, I think he I think he has moved on. But um, shockingly, I'm admitting that because I never thought that was possible. I certainly appreciate you sharing that. I know Bobby Fisher, the great chess master. When he was dying, his last words were, there's nothing as healing as the human touch. And what he tried to explain was that that human touch can just be a whisper, a thought, a whim, something that lasts when the body is gone. It's an incredible feeling. Yes, it is. And that's, even though I'm changing it slightly, that's one of the things I think doctors need to do more is touch their patients. I think they need to make that human connection with their patients, not just stand there with a clipboard in their arms. They need to go over to the patient and hold their hand or, or put their, arm, their, their hand around the patient's wrist, put their hand on their shoulder. I think doctors need to do that more. I think it would be much more healing for the patient if you make that human touch. Human touch is an unbelievably powerful thing, isn't it? Indeed. Can you put into words the moment that you visited the Jacobo family? I could sum it up in one one word. That word would be nervous. <laughs> it was scary. I mean, you know, um, and it's scary for them. I mean, it's <clears throat> I I was I used to be the, the vice president of Transplant Speakers International, and I saw a family meet of a donor family, meet a recipient family. I saw the donor family meet the recipient and they, it almost went, got into a fist fight. I mean, it was unbelievable. And that's not uncommon because you can think about all the emotions that are involved in, you know, um, and now I go to this house in California, this, um, a, a very pretty house in California, with um, this lovely family, the Jacobos, um, and, I don't know what emotions they're going to feel. I know the emotions I'm feeling. I'm, I'm walking back into their house with the heart of their son. That's a, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of nervousness. And they're going to be looking at me and I'm, I'm, I'm older than the parents and they're going to be looking. Our young son went into this old man. That's what I was afraid of. And, and they could not have been more more loving, more welcoming. Um, the mother and the ex-wife both told me that I'm now family. And I do feel like I'm family, and I, I feel like they're family to me. And uh, we stay in touch. We talk to each other. We, we um, message each other on Facebook. We're constantly somehow in contact, even if it's just a, you know, a, a, something on Facebook. But uh, it's really been quite lovely and um it is nerve-wracking i said to the mother the last time i said you know this is really strange for me and she goes you know this is really strange for me too i said yeah i'm sure it is and um it's, it's got to be difficult for them to be wa watching this guy walk around with their son's heart 
but it's difficult for me to be walking around with their son's heart in their home, knowing they're thinking that and feeling their pain. I mean, you can see there's pain. They just lost the guy. I mean, there is definitely pain. Um, but every, every, um, donor family has told me that the one thing that made sense out of the tragedy, because it's always a, a trauma that makes you a donor. It's a trauma. Um, you know, a car accident, a gunshot, you fell, whatever it is, but it's a trauma. Um, and it's sudden <clears throat> is that they always say that the only thing that made sense out of this tragedy is the fact that, that, that he or she is now saving lives and it has saved a life or, you know, and that, that makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't take away the fact that they're in pain and, you know, and that I can sense that pain. That sensation and that awareness, and you indeed are quite a sensitive man. Was that part of the epiphanal moment that prompted you to write the book? Oh, I wrote the I started writing the book a long time ago. It took me years to write the book. Um, but I then I started supercharged by writing it, and it was because... Um, my, you know, all my, um, strategies for how to live. And, and people would say to me, doctors would say to me, you have to write a book. People have to know what you did and have to know how you did it. Uh, you have to write a book. And so I wrote the book. I mean, it's my story, but I use my story as an analogy so that I can deliver. This is how I did this at this point. This is how I did this at that point. So that people can see that that you you can use strategies in a hospital. You can use strategies when you're sick to help yourself get better, or to at the very least help yourself face it with dignity. Now, I'm not saying that people have to use my strategies. I'm saying that I'm hoping that my book will allow people to say to themselves that they can use strategies of their own. Just I want to just give them the idea that they can that they can take control way more than they realize with when it comes to their own health. Do you keep a diary? No. You do mm. not. No, I don't. <clears throat> so basically in writing the book you wrote experientially. You just wrote about things that happened at the moment and then put them together on the written page. That's a marvelous process. Not everyone would be capable of doing it. Can you in detail describe your literary creative process? My, I don't really, you know, I'm, I've been writing for since, I've been writing professionally since I'm in about 20. Um, I just sit down and write. And if I have um, writer's block, what I do is I sit down and write. And I'll write gibberish if I have to and then be ready to throw it out. But as long as I keep writing, then I'm writing. Um, this is, a, you know, people say, a lot of people said to me, <clears throat> the memory, the detail you have here from when you were five and the detail you have from when you were so young is really amazing. But when you think about it, I was suffering trauma and, you know, emotional trauma and and any psychologist will tell you trauma sears your memory. So, you know, going back and, and writing what I experienced wasn't that difficult um, because I just recalled everything. Um, but my writing process was just I sat down and wrote every day. That's all. I wanted to write two or three chapters a day. Certainly one chapter a day at the least. Do you believe, Stephen, that every patient has a book in them? I've seen a lot of books come out of people having heart transplants. Um, I think every person has a book in them, but that's, you know, but not every person has the ability to do it. I think every person has a song in them, but not everybody, everybody has the ability to write it, you know? So, I mean, um, we're, all, we're all endowed with um, different skills and things like that. So, um I know that every person has a story and that every person's story deserves to be told and heard, but I don't know if every person has the ability to, to, to tell their story. I don't, I don't know. That's, again, kind of out of my pay grade. Your life as an advocate, can you describe how you present the issue of organ donorship? 
Well, when we were in transplant speakers and we were teaching, we were going along to the <clears throat> the various OPOs in the country. That's the organ procurement organizations. They're the people who arrange for you to get the organ in your state when you're sick. Um, we would go to their volunteers and teach them to go out in pairs with a, a recipient and a donor so that the two sides of the story could be told. And we found that that was a really effective way for people to um, to 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 talk to people, to go to schools, go to wherever they were they were speaking, and it was a much more powerful way than just having a donor or just having a recipient telling their story. Um, now, now my advocacy is as far as you know, I did 16 years of transplant speakers, and now I'm kind of I mean I'll always be an advocate for transplantation, but now my advocacy is is um, I'm trying to switch over to. Um, to or to include the the, the patient doctor hospital relationship um, mission that I'm on because I think that I could be that that could be used to to save lives everywhere. The idea of the receiver and the donor knocking on your door at the same time that's incredibly powerful. Have those visitations or discussions ever been put on disc or tape? Oh, yeah. I mean, people do this all day. I mean, we've trained. There are 56 LPOs in the country, and 53 of them are our clients. Um, they've gone, you know, all different variations of what we've trained. And, and then, of course, there's people who've done it without without us, too, of course. And, um, you know, people are all over the country are, are, are doing their way of, of, of advocacy. And, and um and it varies it varies as much as it varies from person to person and it's really quite wonderful that all these people are so dedicated to trying to save other lives if we were to take a leap of faith clicker heels second star to the right what do we see you doing in 10 years hopefully i will be <clears throat> this advocacy will will have been will have taken off uh you know for this this mission i'm on and and hospitals and doctors and patients will have um, better understandings of each other. There will be, um, I'm not sure exactly what form it's going to take yet, but there will be workshops. There will be, there will be um, group meetings so that um, everybody can handle, can deal with each other better than they are doing it now. Um, I'm, I'm, um, my second book should absolutely be out by then. And um, that's, I guess, what I say. Can you describe in any measure of detail without giving away any secrets what your second book will explicitly deal with? It's basically going to deal with, um, it's going to be a combination of philosophy, of my philosophy about, you know, about um, your attitude and, 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 and those type of things and dealing with how to, how to be in a hospital and how to, and how to advocate for yourself and it's going to have a good section for the doctors as well. Intriguing, intriguing. Any final thoughts for those in the listening audience? We're within less than two minutes of what has been uh, an incredibly interesting but also an incredibly unusual conversation. We haven't discussed politics. We haven't discussed economics or history or background. We've discussed intrinsic humanity. And for that, uh, I feel my audience should be extremely grateful. Any final thoughts for those out there who are on a fence? Well, I just think that, like I said before, I, w I would hope that everybody becomes a, um, a donor. Um, before I say that, though, I, I want to thank my two donors and my two donor families. Um, you know, Lawrence was my first donor. I only knew his name. I never met the family or anything, but um, I, I want to thank him and his family, and I want to thank the Jacobos and, and David um, because um, without them, I'm not here. And we, without donors, donation is just a wish. But I would really encourage people to think about becoming donors because um, you're done using those parts. Why don't you give it a second chance to somebody else? And, uh, you know, it, I mean, I just saw a thing of a, of, a, of, a, of a man walking down the aisle with a bride, and, and the man had received the bride's father's heart. Your donations can make things like that possible and um, make life 
possible to go on. And I just ask everybody to think about becoming a donor and making sure you tell your family which way you fall on that issue so that they know, even if it's that you don't want to be. That's a beautiful descriptive phrase describing a wedding and the man carrying the heart of his fiancée's father. Perhaps that's the perfect way to end this discussion. Our guest has been Stephen Taibbi, an author, philosopher, raconteur, a traveler in human nature. We thank you for being here, Stephen, and hopefully we can hear from you again. Thank you. It would be my pleasure. The program is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Be with us again next time. Rome once fell, and all great civilizations do. Is America falling? Could we be doing more? Some say it's because we have stopped focusing on learning and understanding what it means to be a good citizen. That's what this podcast is all about. If civics is dead, what happens next? Subscribe to Civics is Dead on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice, or visit wcwp.org slash civics is dead. 